Change Africa podcast, and today we're going to have another brilliant um, guest with us on the Change Africa podcast TEDx special edition, where we are interviewing. When I say having a conversation with some of the astute young leaders in Accra who are the helm of the transformation that is happening across different spheres, um, I'm here with my co-host Danny Murky. Danny, how are you doing? Great. <laughs> <laughs> Gotten caught in the presence of Accra. Yeah, <laughs> can say so. Yeah, so today our guest is Patrick Finn. Patrick Finn is the founder of Stand Out Care, which is a a community-driven organization that is seeking to transform how we view healthcare in Ghana. And Patrick is here to talk about the work that he's done in the past few years with respect to youth activism, um, development, and healthcare. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing well. Yeah. And how are you doing too? Good, good. So, you have been in the youth activism slash youth development space for a very long time, right? But you set up as a writer. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about that long, winding journey to coming to find yourself? And that's because you started writing way back when you were in school, right? What are some of the things that inspired you to write and especially write about the things that you read. You were a youth, but you were very passionate and outspoken around um, social economic issues as well. Um, so way back in junior high school, when we used to have junior graphic, mm-hmm. we were one of those people who would send features, get it published, and you know enjoy all the excitement that came with it. Okay. So I found the art of writing um, very exciting in in the very early formative part of of my growing up. How young were that? I think that um, from primary school, somewhere class five. Around ten years. Yes. Let me. Well, we we started writing love letters. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, from writing love letters to now writing proper articles, um, a little bit of poem, a little bit of um, you know just insights into any 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 topic. Then afterwards, when I went into senior high school, uh, I joined the editorial board. In fact, I later became the deputy editor-in-chief. So we used to write content every time about what's happening in the school and uh, things in secondary school. I moved into leadership where I still would do a lot of writing, uh, writing proposals, content development for SLC, etc. Then after school, I, that, that's when I think I honed my writing skills very well. Um, especially with the use of social media. For me, it has been a very helpful tool because I get to... Because you're kind of a social media. So well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on social media, you get to hear and read more perspectives, feeds into your own, and then it, it helps build, build the whole writing process. I have been writing about entertainment, about art, about health. I remember somewhere in 2012, I created um, a health blog that that went very far as far as 
um, um, Asia, Europe, we had subscribers from all across the world and we're generating a lot of engagement at the time. You know, but along the way, when I started now practicing medicine and doing more of community work, the writing has not been, you know, one of my main main activities. But even currently, we are doing our best to incorporate writing into the community work we do at Standout Care. So now we do daily uh, health posts. We are trying our best to, you know, keep our website and our blog active with writing. So for me, I have found writing to be a part of me. Um, I'm a person who communicates more, you know, by writing instead of speaking, because I feel that my my thoughts can be better expressed when I when I write. And one of my favorite subjects was English language. Uh, I I enjoyed English and science so much, and there was no way. Really, really. Language can they don't quote English. My previous subject in high school was English too. Okay, but okay. The average garden doesn't quote English to me. Yeah. It was. I think that uh, when I was in school, I was a second best English student, mm-hmm. although I was a science student. Yeah, I, I have student experience. <laughs> if someone was watching, like, yeah, yeah I was bad. a science student who had probably have. They used to call me working dictionary in school. Wow. No, no kidding. That, that's where that's where my writing skills got better. I was practically learning the dictionary. I remember taking the dictionary and just randomly opening the page, and whatever words I find there were my words for the day. And yeah. I think it's it's been helpful. And what is the segue from writing? We're going to talk about leadership later, right. but into community work, more particularly health care, because what you will find is that the average person who is in the medical field, being the nurse, being the physician assistant, being the doctor, they have an inclination to want to be in the city. Right? Yes. Because let's be honest, we have a very disjointed healthcare system yeah. in Africa, more particularly in Ghana. So what inspired you right, to take that route of going to the places where people really do not care about? And you can't blame them for not caring about Right. Because they also have to think about their career tra- tra- trajectory, how much money you're going to make, how much comfort. Why, why do you put yourself in that discomfort? I have been a very social person. Not a sociable person who loves to uh, be amongst people, but I concern myself with uh, social issues. Mm-hmm. When I was in secondary school, as part, uh, apart from my academics, I took very interesting interest in social issues science students but you find me doing debating and writing for the school i was an actor i was actually the drama club president mm-hmm. we went around uh, greater accra doing stage drama um, i i did a lot of leadership eventually became senior prefect uh, became greater accra regional SLC president so i find myself getting interested and involved in things of social change and leadership and I think it is that background combined with my my medical practice, which has encouraged me to do community community work, because um, as an everyday leader, you get to understand um, you know situations properly than the, the average person, because you are the helm of affairs. You see things better. You understand needs and problems. So when when there's a need to create change, you find it easier to do it by yourself. Um, you know, I'm I'm an Accra boy, but Ghana Health Service posted me to some village in Ashanti region, and I did not, for a moment, 
think that I would not want to go because I'm, I'm more of a community development guy. I saw it as an opportunity to go in there. Someone has to do the work. Someone has to go to the rural area where nobody wants to go to. Took it upon myself, and I think it's been a beautiful experience. So can you take us on that journey? Um, what was this community? What was the state of affairs? Um, how was, was it as compared to what you already knew? <laughs> and if you reflect back, what, what were you thinking? What were you thinking at the time? Um, there were questions about going or not or not going. Um, you, you, there will be a brief dilemma. And then you say, why not? I've already been doing community work. I've already been going to remote places. This may even be a chance to explore new settings. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a career where maybe become some influencer or leader somewhere. How would you be a leader when you have no idea what's really, really happening in certain, pe- certain places? If you are to spend all your life in Accra, the city, you make assumptions about other places, you will not have information to, to create change. So I saw it as an opportunity to you know, gain some new perspective, experience some um, some new life somewhere, and see what else life has to offer. It's a deprived area where some, sometimes network issues, sometimes uh, you don't get your basic life amenities. But if you understand the real reason why you are where you are, you would have that intrinsic motivation to continue to do what you do. You've talked about intrinsic motivation, um, but I'll guess, like I say, that those doubts and Thomas's in your mind, and you are sometimes as human going to think, well, maybe I should go, I should not be here or that. What was the worst moment in that posting period, like? What, what was the worst moment that you can recall? I share an experience. I mean, yeah, like that's what I want. I want to know the stories. So, um, I was posted. I met the director of health service in the district, and he he got people to help carry my items to my facility where I was going to stay. And the pickups plus my car. I was following them. We got to the place. They put my things down, and the pickup left. Okay. Then I took my phone to call my parents and say, oh, mommy, I've settled. Pick my phone and there was good service. <laughs> I, I'm not exaggerating, but I cried. I practically shed tears because I thought it was a mistake. I was like, how do I leave everything I've built in the city and come to a place where I can't make a phone call? And I look around and it's a, it's a, it's a whole new environment. It's not your regular uh, urban or peri-urban or city place and I felt I disappointed myself but I thought let me let me take it one step at a time uh, it's, it's an opportunity to create change and maybe make some difference here how did you make that work? come again how did you make it work? being there how did you make it work? I mean how did, how did I survive? exactly it's um, it's in the mind I I'm a person who self-inspires. I motivate my own self. I talk to myself every day. I tell myself, no, it's okay, you'll be fine. Um, I know how to look at the bright side of things. You know, within every problem, there's an opportunity. Um, I like to do the positive reframing 
and look at how I can turn my lemons into lemon. I don't know. I don't know how they call it. <laughs> <laughs> so once once I'm able to convince myself that this is not the worst there is, mm-hmm. and that within this I can still make some change, I'm okay. And once I convince myself, there is nothing I will not be able to do if I put my mind to it. But that's like the positive reframing. Did it happen at that moment, or it's like it took a time. It, it definitely took a time. Uh, there have been several instances in my life where I'm up to something or I take a decision and I realize this is going to be challenging. Mm. But if I take it one step at a time, if I make it an everyday step to be taken, you realize that as you um, familiarize yourself with the situation, learn more about it, re-strategize, mm. convince yourself this is not too bad an idea. As time goes on, you realize that you are, you are actually surviving. So the strategy to facing the demon, or to like this caricature of a problem, is just re-strategize, reframe the problem, and try to see it in a better light. Exactly. Yeah, because it's all in your mind. It's all in your mind. That's interesting. Um, but that's how you got the idea of standout care, right? Standout care started in 2015. I. I remember doing some of my shifts. You realize people come in very, very complicated situations, um, health conditions that are avoidable, totally avoidable. Some emergencies which should not be, some deaths which are very present, preventable. And I ask myself, but this thing could have been prevented if if it was known earlier. So I said, how about we find a way of simply helping people overcome their health barriers? If someone was rushed in by their um, relatives with a sudden onset of stroke, all it needed to be done was for this person's um, underlying conditions to be detected. If it was detected, if this person was counseled, if they were guided, if they had some behavioral change, there is no way this hypertension would turn into stroke. So I said, how about we just do, we just do some screening? But it was still it was still an idea. It was still a concern until so at the time all I was just doing was health education. I I used to just go to churches, school, and run health talks. That was the social initiative at the time, mm-hmm. and I think we we did so well. I won um, a slot into Yali, okay. Young African Leaders Initiative, mm-hmm. and I think that Yali was the breakthrough for standout care. It was there that I had the whole standout care idea properly refined. They took us through an intensive five-month uh, training, coaching, and I realized that this had to be done. So after Yali, we came full-fledged. After Yali, you are required to do um, one community impact project. So that was a project we did, and we realized it was a good one. If we sustain this, uh, it will work. So that was somewhere in 2016, 2017. After that, um, I'm happy to see Standout Care is now, you know, a well-sustained social enterprise. What was the most shocking revelation in your engagement with people around health education? What are some of the things that you thought everybody should know this, but people are like, you know, totally didn't know. What is most shocking is that people think they know, mm. but um, most people know very little, or what what people think they know most of the time are wrong. One of, one of the most difficult problems we have in Ghana and Africa for that matter 
is knowledge, knowledge limitations. Um, people's level of knowledge about health, about well-being, even about their finances, even about religion, relationships. People are always working with wrong knowledge. And it is amazing how they could hold on to it with all their lives. Sometimes getting someone to unlearn what they know for you to teach them something new can be so difficult. You would go to a place, run a health education for them, and somebody raises his hand only to ask you a question that will totally duel all that you say. In spite of the one hour you spent educating this person, he still believes that what he knew is insistently the right one. Um, so it, it's, it creates a whole a whole a whole difficult wall to overcome you know you, you, you need to you need to em, em, emphasize and reinforce and convince people to accept new ideas new knowledge and i think that as a country we need to start um reorienting our people from that level people need to throw away some unhelpful ideologies and theories and begin to you know, appreciate new knowledge um, it starts from one hour formal education. We, you know, if you have if you have some basic education, you are able to appreciate concepts very easily. It's easier to sell new ideas to a person. But you realize that our illiteracy rate in Ghana is very high, mm-hmm. and usually they are the ones who who create the problems for us. You know, we also need to. Essentially. Okay. And in building standout care, what do you feel was your biggest blockade? You know, you started with what was basically education and you started with screening. What was that blockade? Was it going to some out um, outrageously far place? Um, what was it? Was it finances? Because obviously you didn't have funding. How are you going? How, you, how did you keep yourself going? Okay. Um, one of the one of the first challenge with running an enterprise like this is sometimes you're not sure whether you should be doing this in the first place. Mm. <laughs> sometimes you feel like, what's, what's the point? Sometimes you are done and you ask yourself, okay, so... Why did I have to do this? What was the point? And it, 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 it questions the need for what you are doing. And if you are not careful, if you are not careful, you may not go the second time. So this is where I mentioned self-motivation. If you yourself, you are inspired by your own self. Or at least if you have some friends, family, team members who keep pushing you, that's even helpful. You know, the most successful people we see around go back indoors and usually it's not a lot of success you know, back in their bedrooms. They, 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 question, they question themselves a lot because trying to create change is both physically and mentally exhausting. So exhausting that um, if, you don't, if you don't find some internal and external source of energy, you may not be able to continue. And we will be deceiving ourselves as, you know, agents of change if we don't identify this as the first challenge. And this is where inspiration helps. This is where telling people they are doing well helps. This is where encouraging people, awarding them, 
uh, recognizing their efforts, even telling a friend that I like what you are doing, it's amazing, helps to push them. Uh, so that's that's one first challenge that most people like myself face. The second thing is money. <laughs> to what what we do at Standout Care is to take essentially free to affordable care. Our beneficiaries enjoy the services for free. In rare cases, do they pay you know small sums of money for it? So the so the end user gets the service for free, but someone along the chain must pay for it. Usually, it's us or um, a partner. And it's very difficult securing resources. Resources I'm talking about even transportation, drugs, um, test kits, even human resources. Sometimes team members are not even reliable. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you expect someone to be available to go on a project with you and they say, no, I can't make it. Because the person may have, you know, other equally important engagement that, are paying, that is paying them better. You know, and here, and here we are asking people to volunteer their services for free. The lack of resources, the lack of support is is a big challenge. I remember, I I can I can I can I can't count the number of times drug companies have said no to no to us. We are talking about drug companies who can afford who can afford as many as ten cartons of medicines to just give to you for free to do your outreach. But you see them dragging their feet and willing to support. Um, I keep saying that for social impact projects like what we do, if we were to get support for it, a lot of the problems we have at the national level would not be happening because NGOs do a lot of work that go unrecognized, you know, and just resourcing them can go a long way to solve some of our problems. When you go for outreaches, right, what is the most dominant illness out there, right, that shocks you? Actually, virus. Uh, virus uh, is population specific. When we go to prison units, mm-hmm. the the commonest um, ailments in the prison are dermatological lesions, wow. skin rashes, scabies, fungal infections, largely skin. Is it because you know because of the yes because of the of the congestion and the plenty contacts? Mm-hmm. It's terrible. I I I don't have the specific statistics, but if you take every three prisoners out of two will have such skin lesions. Then when you go into the, the communities in the remote places, um, hypertension, the, the chronic cardiovascular conditions, hypertension, diabetes, among you know, the aged, um, you have the young people are also recording high levels of infectious diseases, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, uh, gonorrhea, and of course, malaria, very endemic. It's, it's always um, high on our numbers. We're going to talk about um, prisons, right? because that's a huge thing that you guys do, which is wonderful. But these people in the rural areas, why are they having hypertension? Because they're supposed to be active, they're supposed to be eating natural food, right? So that, that would take us into the what we call the pathophysiology of hypertension. In fact, when you take um, 10 cases of hypertension, 9 of them have no known cause. So essentially, you cannot blame the people. Uh, maybe by dint of some environmental factors, no. No matter no matter how far you look, you don't really find a specific cause. In in a few number of the cases, there are identifiable health conditions. You know, so it's more of a lifestyle thing. Some of them, uh, in spite of the the setting they find themselves, they are still sedentary. Some of them are still obese. 
some of them even have uh, stressful events that are precipitating these hypertensive conditions. Maybe just to elaborate, you said nine out of ten. Yes. You can't. Nine out of ten cases of hypertension mm-hmm. are what we call idiopathic. The cause yeah. is not known. You cannot identify a specific thing that's causing the hypertension. That's across board. Yes, across board. Okay. But then what accounts, but I guess there will be groups and communities that have far higher hypertension than others. So what would account for that? Um, so like, um, like I said, most of, the, most of hypertension doesn't have a known identifiable cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the few others, you have causes like diabetes, kidney disease, mm-hmm. high levels of cholesterol being the cause of the hypertension. Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to wrap my head around is if you have, let's say, two communities mm-hmm. and one... It's more hypertensive. Yeah, let's say one has 10% and the other one 20%. The, te- the 10 extra percent, would that not be identifiable or that statistic would hold? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, it's just something... Uh, right. But, yeah, right. it's hard to ha- wrap my head around. Okay. It's very interesting. Hmm. So, what do people who have hypertension... Which is so vast, as you're saying, in the population, what do they have to do? If you have hypertension, um, you need to get treatments for it. So hypertension is treatable. It's a chronic illness, so you need to be on daily routine medications. There are some cases of hypertension that do not need treatments. Sometimes it depends on what the figure is. We call it prehypertension. That's not a typical hypertension. The person is on the verge of being hypertensive. Those ones, when you counsel them to do lifestyle modifications like do exercise, change your diet, stop alcohol, stop smoking, they will be fine. Okay. And usually, it is these lifestyle lifestyle uh, determinants that cause the nine out of ten people whose causes are not really identifiable okay. because okay. of so certain, a mix of ex- a mix of all of that. So it's it's hard mm. to pinpoint one particular yeah. one. Huh. Hmm. So let's segue into the young people. And how you were saying that there are a lot of infectious diseases, particularly HIV. You would think that we are in the 21st century, we are in 2023, a lot of people are watching a lot of condom adverts. Why don't people not use them? <laughs> when you go to, um, I, 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 I will classify as, as uh, metro cosmopolitan communities, mm-hmm. places where there's a lot of uh, exchanges going on, there's a lot of commercial activities. Mm-hmm. Um, Galamsey communities mostly in the Ashanti region and some parts of Ghana people are, people are living their lives they are living their best life these things do not go into the books but you need to go there to see for yourself mm-hmm. you see how young people as young as 13 years could stay, could stay late into the night nobody cares about it they have boyfriends. I tell you a story. <laughs> One day we were in the hospital and a woman came. She said her daughter has been missing. And they went to report at the information center. And after six days... Information center we <laughs> do. Yeah. And then after six days, they, they realized that this lady was in a boy's house. How old was the boy? 14 years. So a 14-year-old boy can take a 13-year-old girl into his parents' house, lock the girl in his parents' room. I, I don't know whether the parents were aware or they are aware but unconcerned. And this happens for four to six days. This is the this is the height of 
of how how risky young people are engaging in certain behaviors. They don't know what condoms. They don't know what contraceptives are. For them, it's all about the money. One lady who worked into the consulting room as young as 16 years. Listen to what her complaint was. At 16 years, she comes and says that she's with a man, and the man is complaining that she's not getting pregnant. So she has come for us to help her get pregnant. What? Yes. A 16-year-old girl. She doesn't care about education. She doesn't care about starting a business. She's concerned about raising a baby for a man. And like I mentioned, uh, our educational level, upbringing, the standards are falling for some of these things. And this is where we need to make adjustments in our social cultural setting. Make young boys and girls see that there's a, there's a better life beyond the enjoyment you are getting in your puberty. It's a better life beyond your best life. <laughs> <laughs> beyond your, your best life, you know. And so, when you go into the communities, you find these young people having high rates of pregnancy, they are getting um, syphilis, HIV, and the STIs. And it's it's really, really alarming. So is Maybe, that a, a condition for only such cosmopolitan but remote areas? Or we find that in the city as well? It's in the city, but not as prevalent as we find in, in such communities. Because, you know, in the cities, there are, there are more checks and balances. Um, okay. So, when you say check and balances in the city, so you're referring to civil society? or what I'm, I'm referring to more urban places, like Accra, um, mm-hmm. Kumase, etc. But, I mean, civil societies yes. work? Yes, exactly. exactly. Or you are referring to people's knowledge level? I think a combination of both. So let's talk about your project in the prisons, right? Tell us about it. So uh, our mission at Standout Care is to take the health care to um, underserved populations mm. and, and, and remote communities. And of course, when, when you talk about underserved populations, the, the people in uh, in prison, it's who are incarcerated are parts. We, we we forget about them, but they are also humans like us and have the right to to healthcare. And I I have a fair idea how the health system in the prison is like. Tell us it's, about it. It's 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 not good to write home about. You can imagine how low resourced the the ordinary Ghanaian health setting is, and now you can you can just oppose it to how it will be in the prison service. You have a hundred times worse. hundred times worse. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a perfect description. You've got uh, one nurse, one nurse prison officer who runs an infirmary. An infirmary has just a few drugs stuck in there. And you are sick. All, all he can give you is some... For a population of... 300 in some prison units, some places 400, some places 200 and something, you know. And there's usually little they're able to do for them. For no fault of the prison of, of the prison system. But I think it is um, the country that has, that hasn't resourced the unit so well. So we said, okay, why not go to these people? Even if it is once in a month or once a year, you'll be able to identify something and treat for the person. So uh, the, the start of that project was was tough. I think it's been the toughest initiative we wrote at Standout Care. We were first trying to get permission from the prison's headquarters, and that took us six months to one year. 
six months to one year getting the prisons you need to say okay you can go into the prisons and take care of it why is that bureaucracies um, so is it that the criminal justice system posits the idea that for someone who has been judged ill in the eyes of the law doesn't deserve okay. I, I no I don't think I don't think that is the intention. I think it's because the prison is a security zone. They want to be careful who is allowed in there. Um, everybody wants to have their back covered to be sure that the highest authority has allowed it. They, may, they also want to do maybe some background checks. So I think that is where the, uh, the difficulties came in. Mm-hmm. But eventually we crossed the hurdle and started our first prison project somewhere in 2018, if, if I'm not mistaken. And it was one of the most fulfilling programs we've had in our NGO. Fulfilling. Fulfilling because we, we felt we have given something to the person who needed it the most. You go into prison and they, they rush at you for the healthcare service as if they are seeking freedom to step out of the prison. It is so demanding that at a point we get overwhelmed by, by, by the numbers, but we do our best. And we rolled it out from one prison to the other. What we do at standard care is essentially supposed to be preventive health care. It's supposed to be more about testing to detect counsel, you know, etc. But in the prison, it's more curative. So in there, we, we actually take the hospital to the prison and do a lot of hospital work in there. Uh, comes with a lot of resources. It is, it is in the prison, prison outreaches that we take a larger number of team members, sometimes 20 people. The last prison outreach we did the team size was about 35. Taking 35 healthcare workers into a prison means that there's a lot of work to be done in there. And very cost, very um, capital intensive, demanding in terms of funding. So we are unable to do that on a more regular basis as we do for community outreaches. Mm. I mean, I, I had a question which was exactly about the funding and the capital intensity, but maybe. Aside of that, maybe a step back in terms of the willingness to fund of, I don't know the different, I don't know if you raise grants or where you have different sources of money regarding like, let's say for the prison, serving the prisons versus let's say other cases or let's say children. Just wondering how that is. Is there a difference in the difficulty to raise funds? Um, the difficulty is the same. Mm-hmm. It's, it's generally difficult to raise funds for social interventions. Uh, it's, it's, it's unclear why it's difficult um, sometimes we, we plan on doing social media campaigns but we see very little sometimes we approach um, pharmaceutical companies philanthropists if you're lucky some come in if you're not lucky you, you go back empty handed so we have to devise a, a funding strategy that's more like robbing Peter to pay Paul uh, standard care is meant to provide, like I said, healthcare to remote communities. But we thought that there were other groups of people who have the capacity to pay for healthcare, to pay for medical screening, like organized groups, churches, corporate institutions. Yeah. So we started targeting those people, do screenings for them, make profits off those ones, and then take the accumulated uh, revenue to those who cannot who cannot pay. And that has quite sustained us. That has been...
Patrick, if you think about uh, the numerous prison outreaches you've had, is what one story really stands out to you as the most touching? Talk about stories. <clears throat> so, we are credentialed to go into the prison to take care of them. Then we end up becoming counselors and giving them an, a, a listening ear. We actually realize that they actually even want to tell their stories to someone. They, they just want to be heard. So, we, we also listen to them. Another oh, story that touched my heart was uh, one man was an accountant of a certain company I don't remember and then his his friend was in need of money so he said okay I could I could direct uh, some business funds to you uh, when can you pay back I, I could pay back in a month or two and so that I, I can put it back in the business and that was it uh, the guy booted with the money nobody heard of him again I think it was a really large sum amount of money. So in, eventually he couldn't pay and the court put him in jail. This is a, a man who had built his life well educated. You would, you would see, you would view the prison as a place for, excuse me to say, ragamuffins or a place for street, street people. But you go into the prison and, and there are people like yeah, ourselves, well educated, have lived beautiful lives but for some some circumstances they have found themselves in there and that story really touched my heart because some of the things that that cause people to be incarcerated could happen to any of us uh, any of us in our line of work could just be involved in some mishap that is intentional or unintentional and before you realize your, your life is changed and I, I remember the man I remember one man told me that and I wrote an article about this he said anything can bring you here that was what he told us and this thing has continuously resonated in my mind that we are all fallible um, what, no matter how cautious you are in what you are doing one least thing sometimes I'm, I'm driving being very defensive being cautious you have no idea where some human being will just come from and before you realize they are right in your face and if luck is not on your side the next place you are ending up is the prison and we we go to treat these people but they become a source of life lessons for even us and i remember i remember weeping in one of the prison outreaches because it's sad how someone's life could in a second just get turned around what has Prison outreach has taught you about the criminal justice system and perhaps um, a revolution. No, the word I want to use is a, a much needed change to it. I think the justice system is overstretched. It's unnecessary putting some of the people in prison. Very unnecessary. Two people get into a bar fight and we, we put one in prison to serve six years and we spend money to feed them. We pay. Um, wardens to take care of them we buy big locks to keep these people small space we can't even accommodate them when we need people for community service we need people some of them could be fined some of them could be made to just work on the streets do some time and be pardoned but I, I interestingly there have been several calls for you know, for for, 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 for for changing and reforming this, but you wonder where those those fall on. You wonder you wonder why 
our leaders are not paying heed to these calls. And for me, I think that we don't even need to belabor the point that some change has to be done. Yeah, and then I think it also kind of, even if somebody had a sentence of even, let's say, one year, it kind of takes away the chance for reform and even reintegration into society. I mean, looking at all the stories that you have put together. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember several instances where we, they know that health professionals have come in to provide care for them. These prisoners take advantage to sort of plan towards their reintegrating into society. So you see them begging us for our contacts to say that, oh, I'm left with six months more to go. Please give me your phone number so that when I'm out of prison and I come, you will help me. Which means that the system that puts them there to reform them does not have any plan for their reintegration after discharge from the prison system. So maybe it's time to really look at the whole um, justice and jailing um, structure that we have in this country. But how is the awareness in general? Because even for me, it's like, I mean, I could imagine some of the things you are saying, but I think it goes probably two, three steps beyond what one thinks also in terms of the scope of how it affects the people. So I'm just wondering, in terms, even when, in terms of maybe, let's say, from a social responsibility standpoint, but even in society in general, how do people see this topic of prisoners and how is the awareness? I, I think uh, this is not something that has come up at the societal level very mm. much. It's only been a discussion among interested stakeholders. Yeah. Because for the ordinary Ghanaian, he, he doesn't care. He's not affected by the prison system. He, he, he's not bothered much. For uh, things. Well, he thinks he's not, he's not bothered much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for us, who are somehow directly involved, for other people, relatives, uh, people who are directly impacted by these people, they are the ones who feel the impact of how this system affects such people. Yeah. You know, primary healthcare obviously has numerous challenges. Which one of them do you think is easiest to solve but has not been? The, as a country, Ghana, our biggest being at the primary care level is insufficient resources. When you, when you take our budgetary allocation, Less than one percent, less than one percent is allocated for delivery of goods and services for healthcare. All the money is used to um, pay, pay or pay staff. So, uh, and then of course, even at the facility level, the IGFs that are generated are very little, very small. I mean, even look at how the national health insurance operates, the length of time it takes to reimburse facilities. So, uh, the means to resource or provide equipment, clinical services, is so small. And sometimes, all that we do at the facility level is to improvise. Improvisation here, improvisation there. In a typical emergency unit, there are some, there are some necessary equipment, tools, gadgets you need to work with. You, you, call, and, you call and look to your right and it's not, it's not there. So, you have to you have to you know, try and do something. Even apart from the unavailability of resources, um, capital and material resources, 
human resource itself is a problem. You know that physician assistants are the ones supposed to be running the health centers. Um, community health nurses should be run the chef's level. But you go to some of these facilities and then the principal officer who is supposed to be manning these places in some cases are not exist are not not available. Uh, you some cadre of health workers do not exist in some hospitals. When we talk about um, comprehensive health care, it is supposed to be as comprehensive as the name suggests. But ask yourself, how many hospitals can you go to and access eye care, dental care, mental care, even lab services, 247? And you ask yourself, this shows how much little value is given to human life. Compare our situation to that of developed places like, like America. Look at how such countries value single individual lives. Look at the extent they would go to save well, America. Maybe life. not such a great example. They don't free healthcare. Maybe say Canada. Okay, well, <laughs> even if it's not free and the people are paying for it, you know you are paying for something that is that is life saving. Even if it is not free, you know it is existent. You could have the means to assess some of these, but we don't have it. You know. Um, shortage of physicians. You, you, you go to the northern regions and whole districts, whole districts. There is no specialist. Whole districts doesn't have a medical officer. Some some healthcare workers do not want to go to these people because their infrastructure is not existent. The amenities are not there. The motivation to make these people thrive does not exist. Mm-hmm. So you see that the delivery of healthcare is very challenged. We Government needs to uh, revamp their political will to see that health is a priority. Health is, um, health is as much necessary for us as security. Health is as much important as, say, agriculture. And so, look at government's response to COVID-19. Brilliant. Why? Because there was an intentional, conscious will to say that we have this danger if we do not if we do not mitigate, it is going to come up against us. We fought it head on, and COVID didn't overcome as we overcame COVID. It means that for, for primary health care, the delivery of health care services, if political leaders and health, health service managers say that they want to do it, and they want to drive resources towards it, we will we'll be doing better. You, you just talked about COVID-19. You had some interesting thoughts around COVID-19 where you were reflecting on the experience of you know, being a medical professional in the, some of the emergency wars, etc. You were talking about how God is not going to save us. You know, it, 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 it needed to take the collective, collective will of professionals and government to do that. What is one insight that for you... Um, you got from COVID-19 in the crisis? Um, so on that article, some, I wrote it somewhere in 2020, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the peak of the pandemic. What I noticed was that we, we were being the typical Ghanaians we are. The typical Ghanaian is extremely religious. When, <laughs> when, when the typical Ghanaian is supposed to make a good balance between um, physical, spiritual, and and other facets of their life, 
the ordinary Gaganian would rather first of all want to be religious. And I thought that that was not helpful. When COVID came, um, there was there was a COVID response that that was going to help, and that proved to help. COVID was a physical problem, but then people began to spiritualize it. People began to call in God. Why has God brought this upon us? God should intervene. When the intervention of COVID nineteen was simply in the realm of no mask and staying at home, but then people wanted to change the narrative and spiritualize it. And I have always been of the firm belief that a human being is made up of a physical body, a mind, which is a soul, and a spirit. It is important to make a very good fine mix of all the two. When something happens to you, the first thing to do is not to over-spiritualize your problems whilst forgetting about the psychological and the physical aspect of it. It's okay to take care of your problem physically, do what you are supposed to do, what you are capable of doing, and then pray to your God to add on his blessings. And I think that one of the reasons why in these parts we are making very little progress is our over-reliance on, on spiritual um, assistance. There are a lot of things we don't need to be praying about. There, there, there are some steps we need to take it by ourselves and then seek for God's blessings. I think God will be happier to see that you have tried something for yourself first, then he adds on his, his help to it for you. Okay. But again, your insight on COVID-19. What did COVID-19 really teach you around the healthcare in Ghana? Um, COVID-19 made it obvious that our healthcare system was not robust enough. It takes, it takes a shake-up for you to know how strong your foundation is. You may, you may have something you think it's so beautiful until the foundation is shaking. Then you know that, oh, I really did a terrible job building the foundation. COVID came to prove to us that our emergency preparedness was inadequate. COVID taught us that we were never ready for a pandemic. Um, that aside, it, it also exposed uh, the beauty of humanity as one people, it was it was within COVID times that people bonded properly because then you are you you are supposed to be with your families and have a family session and talk to them. It was within COVID that people now stayed home, reflected on their own lives, did new adjustments. It was all work and work and work and work. And for me, I think that one of that was one of the good sides of COVID: the fact that it allowed us to rest. Even the environment itself rested. I remember there was a there was a day during the lockdowns when I was a lone wolf in Osu. I, I practically walked alone on the streets. And I said, Oh, today this city can rest. The noise pollution and the and the chaos was all down. And at least we all could stay home and enjoy some some calm and sanity to ourselves. So it had its its good side, although of course it's it's caused some disruptions in, in everyday life. You know, You've talked about you've um, spoke about the gaps in comprehensive healthcare. One of the things I'm particularly interested in is mental health. Um, what has been your experience with mental health with external care? Um, we added on the mental health components around the time of COVID. Then we saw that we need to start talking about 
mental health, depression, um, mental instability among people. When we also go into prisons, we go there with drugs and tablets with stethoscope, only to realize that, in fact, what some of these prisoners need is not the medicines we've brought. They just want someone to tell them that all is not lost, and they want some reassurance. So, as we grew as an NGO, we came to appreciate the need to bring in some mental health. Uh, some people are not sick. It is just their minds that are sick. So, even giving someone a listening ear, even telling someone how they could cope with the disease they are living with, alone is part of the treatment. And I think we, as a country, need to take our mental health seriously. I don't remember the figure, but the last time I saw budgetary allocation to the Mental Health Authority, it was was a sad one. The last Mental Health Day, I saw the distribution of mental health professionals in the country. And I'm told there are only five psychiatrists in this country. You know, it means that as a country, we are not we are not adequately ready to to take care of the mental health needs of our people. We also have some socio-cultural elements that are worsening, if not already worsening, mental health. Stigmatization um, of people, stigmatization of some conditions, our inadequate knowledge of certain things that make us despise some groups of people. Um, nowadays, we find, we find people trolling each other on social media and healthy bickerings among ourselves these things must be taken seriously because you will never know who is getting depressed or who is getting affected mentally by the few jokes you are passing. Okay, so I think that whilst we are we are advocating for um, physical physical health and getting people to be physically fit, um, health officers and health professionals and even community as a whole should start taking interest in people's people's mental health. Being. Because there are people who are in their rooms depressed that you have no idea of. And the complications of mental health conditions could be dire. People commit suicides and we assume it was it was it was something. But they were going through tough times and nobody cared. So I want us to start a conversation to leadership. You have a long trajectory of leadership in your life. When you reflect on the experience and the troubles, the problem is that you are very much in tune with because of your community work. What is the thing that inspires you to keep going and to keep leading? Um, when I see, I'm always inspired by the image of the, of the outcome. If I see a problem and identify that this is what I can do about the problem, I'm fascinated about the end result. Currently on my NGO, there's a new project we are trying to come up with. It's not started yet, but I, I sit and I picture assuming the project is successful. And I am, I am enthused about the beauty of it, its ability to create change, people being happy and people having their problems solved because of my intervention. 
and that alone keeps me going. And I think that is one of one of the things, one of the imaging I do when I set out to do something. So I'm always inspired by the by the end results, which usually creates a very beautiful picture for me, keeps me going till I achieve it. But we have a very terrible leadership. Uh, uh, status quo I would imagine these people also envision the greatness that you are talking about why do we have such terrible leadership and you have some political ambition you have some leadership ambition really right? political ambition I don't know but you you seem to be the person you've had that you know you've had political ambition at least at the student level yes, yes right? absolutely so I don't know how that is going to fruit into something in the future right but what is your reflection on the potential of being a bad leader and how do you prevent that reality? For me, yeah. being a bad leader, hmm, I think it's, um, it's an almost impossible thing that, that could happen. I, I'm a person with a lot of values. I do, everything I do is, is with integrity. I, I cannot sleep when I, I am up to something negative and I know people are unhappy about an action I took, it makes me very unsettled. I like to work with a clean mind and a clean sheet. If I am getting involved in a venture or I'm getting involved in a certain, um, a certain initiative and I feel this is not, I feel not too comfortable about it, I hardly will, will get involved with it. If I think this would be a bit compromising, this would be a bit a dent on my reputation, I'm likely not to get involved. So, being a bad politician or being a bad leader in the future, I don't think it would be part of my attributes. And so you think other people just have ease towards corruptible consciences? I, I think that... Uh, <clears throat> Well, let me admit that there are systemic influences. I, I'm, I'm trying not to mention names, but there are some political leaders who, from where they started, we knew they were promising and they would do good to society, yet ended up in political positions and the story was different. When you mean we knew, you mean their speeches were convincing? <laughs> <laughs> not speeches, but you could read from a person's persona. But that this person. Would I think that's really what belies the political persona that we buy into the narrative of persona in the first place, right? Because for me, I think especially in Africa, there is a political persona that wins elections. There is a calming, slow-speaking, seemingly religious, intellectual person with good vocabulary that mesmerizes the audience <laughs> and is we are infatuated by the charisma of the person and the tallness and the beauty of the person and the supposedly he looks like a president figure that translates into a mass appeal that eventually degrades into a person again persona that is not judged by the action of the uh, um of their doings, right? But the relatability of the personality to the mass population, that's really the problem I yeah. see, right? Is that just African? Yeah, maybe it's a human problem too, but particularly, yeah, but particularly maybe African too, because 
we particularly buy into the narrative of wow that is like an enchanting speech right and then we 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 catalyze it with a little bit of tribalism a little bit of you know um corruption here and there people you know pumping money into people and all of that but at the end of the day it doesn't seem to me there's a certain persona read that equates good governance or good leadership maybe i'm wrong mm, but i also feel maybe that's something that you realize at that moment but i think there seems there is something that is driving you versus i think a lot of uh, maybe people who want leadership positions they look at it the other way around they look at like what can of, you gain what can you gain or where is the largest number of people let's say i'm in the health sector so not going to the prisons not going to those communities going to the city so that's and i think it's it's more than once it seems to repeat itself so that's why i was asking the question or why your fascination with people who really have nothing um i think um you can't create change if you are not um solving a problem so if i take healthcare to you in the city you have insurance private insurance you can afford going to the pharmacy what good have i done you Meanwhile, they still have problems <laughs> but their problems are not as pronounced as those who have who do not have it at all we are talking about people who would sit on motorbikes and ride for 30 minutes to be able to receive treatment for snake bites i think those people deserve it better than anybody else so you're optimizing for the people who have almost nothing exactly okay yeah but I guess that's also that's that's probably a differentiation that the leader that we described before with bad governance would probably not optimize for that mm-hmm. because exactly it's still one vote exactly yeah. it's still <laughs> one vote it's still one vote exactly yeah. on the telex stage you spoke at length around a concept you know known by some people I don't know if everyone knows that there's a Japanese concept called ikigai. Why are you obsessed with Ikigai? <laughs> <laughs> I was introduced to Ikigai when I did a fellowship called Yunus and Youth. It was the first thing they taught us. I hadn't heard about it before. And I could 100% relate to what I was taught that day. Although, although I, I had not heard it before, it didn't sound new to me as a concept because I found myself in there. And I was surprised to also realize that not too many people know about this. And people some of a lot of these personal development problems wrong career choices that people make is because they have not made a very good blend of this ikigai concept so i said okay if i have a platform a, a bigger world stage where i'll sell an idea how about talk about something that will enable enable people to find their appropriate profession appropriate vocation their mission and their passion because if we are trying to create change, it's a mix of these four that will encourage people, you know, pick, pick various ends of sustainable development problems so that all hands on deck. And I felt that, no, this, this thing has to be sold and sold further to, to more people. And what is it? Uh-huh. What is it? So the Ikigai is a Japanese concept. It says that for to find your purpose in life or to be able to find fulfillment in what you do, whether it's creating a podcast, whether it's being a journalist, whether it's designing clothing, 
whether it's selling food by the roadside. To be able to do, do these, thi- these things very well so that society is a better place for, for us all, there are four things. The first thing is that you must be good at what you do. So just be good at it. If you're not good at it, try learning to be good at it. Number two, you must love what you are doing. And here's where passion comes in. Because if you don't love caring for people and you are sent to a rural village, a rural community, you would you'd run away from that, from, from that work to do. Then the third thing is that what you are doing must be useful to the world. The world must need it. Because there are people who have passions about certain things we do not need. I give the example of um, somebody who is passionate about suicide bombing or somebody who is passionate about selling some religious ideals which do not sit well with society. These passions are not needed by the world. So you must make sure that whatever you get yourself involved with is is needed. It's part of the sustainable development goals. Then number four, you should find reward in what you do. It could be financial. It could be self-sufficiency. It could be receiving commendations from people. Whatever that you gain at the end of the day that makes you feel good, that gives you a night, a good night's sleep. A combination of these four things will help you align yourself properly with the, the right place to be, the right career to choose, the right machine to be on, the right vocation. If everybody found their ikigai, what it means is that everybody will be extremely good at what they are doing. Whatever everybody was doing will produce perfect results. And a lot of the problems we have would easily be solved. Yeah. But, I mean, when you look, at, of course, that's an ideal scenario. But when you look, especially, let's say, let's, say, let's take Ghana. I think there's a lot of people who probably would have a very different framework. There is not necessarily a choice. There is, a, like, there is an economic imperative. And that's the first. And then if you find something where you can make some money, I think people stick to it. And it goes further. I think there is a lot of people who do not have the choice solely because of maybe access to education at an earlier stage. So I think it's probably a good thing personally for somebody that is in our context quite privileged. And then the other thing is, I don't think you can only, I mean, the passion one, I don't think a society can have all people following their passions. I think there is a level where one needs to have a sense of duty that is like across society. Right. I mean, irrespective of where one finds and also I mean now I'm talking a lot about the third the third one I mean when I look at my personal career it's like I had to go a lot of deviations to get to what I want to do or to get closer and I'm still not there and I knew for a long while that there could be all kinds of things that one does but I think even within that there, I think there is I mean I understand where it's coming from but there is another thing that is kind of you know, missing in our society when it comes to like taking up what one like profession or duty mm. yeah right. yeah I mean I think I, I kind of agree with Daniel I, I like the concept of Ikigai I understand it to some extent I believe in it but if you place it in a context um, maybe maybe there is a certain belief that um, you have for example um, in people's agency, because there are people who do not feel capable enough to choose to have. People do not think they have the right of choice towards the future, um, and sometimes you cannot blame them. Mm. 
right? Yeah. But I personally believe that, right? And I think it's a mental framework, right? I think that there is one thing that you ultimately have is the choice to do something that you want to do. But you have to live with the repercussions, obviously. Of course. And I think when people reflect on the repercussions, then that choice <laughs> is not so obvious because there are parts that when you take, it's pretty suicidal, yeah. right? In our context, right? If you say you're obsessed around, say, becoming a a fashion designer, right? In a place where you have no electricity where you have no access to a sewing machine and say the only thing you have is a pin and some cloth, right? I do not know how you move from doing that, right? Or you have to believe in a certain element of luck to take you there and have a lot of patience. The truth is that we are in an environment where people do not have time to wait for luck to come (laughs) because their essential existential um, concern is their daily livelihood yes. that has to be fixed. Yes. And I think that goes back to you know some of the problems that we've already talked about around healthcare, right? That people optimize for their daily living that they would want to sacrifice a longer time healthy lifestyle you know, to just have a banku meal and just eat it, you know, because at the end of the day, that's food that they have. They don't want, they don't have money for salad and they're going to die if they don't have food to eat. So they should probably eat what, you know, that. And proportionism of the food, right, it's not such a concern to them as much as they can fill their belly. And, and that's the unfortunate scenario. And so maybe to an certain extent, we have to move towards a society where there are some of these fundamental problems all before we can eager on to that. But there, there is still opportunity for people to find that, mm. right? Yeah. To yeah. find that and to follow, follow their passion. One thing I want to ask you, Patrick, is that where do you see yourself, right, in the next five years? Where do you definitely stand out care? as a non-profit that's already, you know, making a lot of strides. But you as an individual, you've taken a lot of transitions in your career. So where do you see yourself as a young leader, as a young medical professional? Um, at the moment, I am a, I'm a field man. I'm a technical person prescribing, which is limiting. You only have the opportunity to impact individuals working to your consulting room. I am looking forward to transitioning into a more influential position. So I've just completed my master's in public health. Hopefully go to do a PhD. And you know that in these parts, you need the qualifications before you are given the space and the authority to make influences. I am looking forward to a career where I can create significant changes in healthcare. Uh, By not having to advocate for it, but because I am in the position and because I have understood the problem earlier on, I was a part of the problem, influence impacted by it, even try to fix the problem. Now I have a fair appreciation what it means to simply click a button and have it resolved. And that is uh, where I see myself uh, wanting to be in the next future. 
so that when there is there is a typical problem happening within the health space, I understand it. I I should be willing to do whatever I can to change those things. And for me, it is about equal access to healthcare. There is no justification for someone in Accra to have um, the healthcare that they sought for and someone in another city, another town outside Accra cannot offer, cannot get the same service. For me, that is unfair. That's not, that's not supposed to be happening. And we should be working towards creating, you know, um, equalities within within these spaces. For standout care, of course, um, an NGO that, that is able to do greater impact. We want to take advantage of technology to increase more healthy healthy behaviors. We want to increase people's knowledge of health. We want people to have bigger control over how they, they, are, they manage their wellness. Mm-hmm. We are currently looking at an IVR service, mm-hmm. an interactive voice response service, mm-hmm. where customers will call in into a short code and listen to well-explained, easy-to-understand health daily messages. Um, we are still working on it, and hopefully when we roll those out, it should be one of the drivers for, you know, uh, driving health promotion in this country. Okay. So you want to move from advocacy to policy action, basically. Yeah. That is Patrick Finn, um, who wants to change systematic problems in Ghana's healthcare, who's a fan of Standout Care, a nonprofit that is reaching out to communities to prisons and wanting to make sure that the inequities in public primary health care is gradually potentially solved. Patrick, thank you for coming to the Change Africa podcast. Thank you very much, Isaac and Daniel. Yes. So this has been the Change Africa podcast TEDx special edition where we are interviewing people like Patrick who were on the TEDx stage and we are going deeper into their stories to understand their lives, their motivation and the impact that they are making reaching thousands of people across Ghana. Thank you very much for joining us and thank you again for joining us, Patrick. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.